If you would um, go ahead and turn your Bibles to chapter or to Philippians chapter two, verses twelve through eighteen, is where we're going to begin this morning. If you haven't been here uh, with us throughout the summer, we're going through the book of Philippians. We've made it all the way to the middle of chapter two. After I think this is seven weeks so far, um, and and after another ten, I think we'll be finished with the entire book, maybe. Uh, depending on how things go. Um, such an amazing book, the, uh, the amazing uh, section of verses right here that we get to look at and potentially some confusing verses and, and uh, your, your inner Calvinist might be itching this morning um, as we read the words of Paul. So if you would, please stand with me as we read Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Father God, we're again grateful to gather and we're grateful for your word. We ask that you would use it to speak to our hearts this morning, that your truth would penetrate, that we would allow it to sink in and and work in our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's inspired word for us this morning. Please be seated. Now this passage begins with the word, therefore. And any time you see the word, therefore, you always have to go back to the preceding sections to find out what it is Therefore, um, killed in the, in the samples here. Um, so you, Paul just got through exhorting the Philippians to follow the example of Christ's humility by reflecting on his life and death and resurrection and, as, and exaltation. You know, for a Christian, this is the motivation for the passage that we find ourselves in this morning. He is saying that because of what Jesus has done for you, because he lived his life in this way, and now sits exalted at the right hand of God the Father, that we must respond in some type of way. It was kind of like if you're in a relationship with someone and you, and, and you, and you get to one of those pivotal moments of the relationship and, and, and you either kind of have a declaration or you ask that, that big question. Um, our, our boy Gordon Duran was engaged on Friday night. Uh, he's not here this morning, but I believe he's still engaged uh, as of Sunday morning. <laughs> and, and, and it, you know, you, you get down on one knee and you, and you ask the question, will you marry me? Now imagine if Maddie had simply said, well, I'm hungry. Let's get something to eat. Okay? This is something that demands a response. The, 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 the sacrifice, the example of Christ, is something that demands a response in our lives. So the, 
Just like that response saying, I'm hungry, let's get something to eat, that is not just a diversion, that is in itself a response. And so for, for us and for, for Christians and for non-Christians, the sacrifice of Jesus is something that demands a response in our lives. We can either bow our knee to him is one response, or to ignore him is another response altogether, and to ignore is really just another way of rejecting him. But this morning, uh, we're going to spend our time focused on the phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is that inner Calvinistic turmoil that as we read this, we go, how is it possible that I can work out my own salvation? Well, we're going to address that question this morning. What is, our, what is our salvation? How do we work it out? And what does it look like in our lives? Those are the three things. So first and foremost, what is our salvation? We need to understand that the word that Paul is using here, or the, the, the thing that Paul is referring to here, he's talking about salvation in sort of two parts. Okay, there's two parts of our salvation. But first, let me start with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says that all true obedience springs from saving faith. Okay, all true obedience springs from saving faith. Now, Spurgeon here is referencing the two aspects of our salvation. There is both an inward work and there's an outward work. Now, you might be saying, wait, wait a second, obedience doesn't have anything to do with our salvation, but, but Paul is going to get to this in, in just a moment. So there's two parts, an, in, an inward work and an outward work. And there's really, the, part of that, there's a complete work of our salvation. And there's an incomplete work. Now, if, you have not, if, you've, if you've ever been in a church before, especially if you've ever been here before, hopefully you've heard this, these verses from Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the complete part of our salvation is the work done for us. This is the work done for us. It's not a work done by us, and it's not anything that we can do. See, grace is unmerited favor. This is a gift. There's nothing we can do to earn it, and therefore there's nothing that we can do to lose it. Now, a lot of parents give their children cars on, their, on or around their 16th birthday. Has anybody been in that situation before in this room? Okay, several of you. Um, now, I did not receive a car. I received an opportunity to purchase my own car from my parents when I was 16 years old. I got a 1985 red Mazda RX-7. Terrible car to let your 16-year-old purchase, even if the car itself was already 16 years old. Um, but... You know, they wanted me to learn a little bit about responsibility and something that I could purchase for myself. But for parents that give their child a gift of a car, what happens when your child does poorly in school or they break curfew or they do something wrong? Well, the keys go away, don't they? You know, this is the type of gift that can be ungifted. Uh, And and I don't want to sound... cruel to you 16-year-olds out there, but the parents are doing a great job if they take away your keys if you don't listen to them, right? That's just called being a good parent. Harper knows exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) 
it's all, true, all too true in her life. Um, but this is not the type of gift that God gives us when he gives us the gift of grace. This is not something that can be taken away. He doesn't offer it to us for a while and say, well, if you behave and if you listen and if you get good grades and if you become a better person, I'll let you keep it. He doesn't offer it to us that way. This is unmerited favor. However, there are a great many people who believe they have this gift who actually do not have this gift. We see Jesus address this when he talks to his disciples and he says that many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. And Jesus' response to them will be, depart from me, I never knew you. So there's a lot of people that mistakenly believe they have the gift of salvation without ever actually having received it. And if you're like me, that thought is terrifying. For the people that Jesus is referring to, they won't find out until it's too late to understand that that gift was not theirs. That it was not, in fact, a gift that they had ever received. Now, Charles Spurgeon said that in a certain sense, the salvation of every person who believes in Christ is complete. And complete without any working out on his part, seeing that it is finished and we are complete in Jesus. See, Jesus did the work on our behalf. And that's what this whole book has been about so far. We owed a debt we could not pay, and he paid a debt that he did not owe. And grace is something that we can never repay. It's something that we don't work for. And it is amazing that most of us often don't even recognize the incredible gift that we have through Christ. See, we're saved from the guilt of our sin because of what Jesus did. So he took that sin upon himself. All of my sin, the sin of my past, the sin of my present, the sin of my future, all of that is taken by Christ. See, God had to stoop down and intervene in a way that I could never do for myself. He made the way, and actually he became the way. And all we must do is to accept the gift. We can't earn it, but we can accept it. And this is the complete part of our salvation. It is the work done for us by the Lord Jesus. Now, the second part of our salvation is an incomplete work. This is incomplete. It is the work done in us. It is the work done in us. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of transformation, the work of the new nature. And Paul says that it is God who works in you. This is not salvation from our guilt, but this is salvation from the power of sin in our lives. See, people often want to jump to the second aspect of salvation without first receiving the first completed part. That's, the, that's where people get confused. Uh, William Hendrickson said that true religion is never merely external compliance. Okay, it's never merely external compliance. It's never just what we do. But that's usually the first question that we want to ask is, Lord, what do I have to do? We could be like the rich young ruler who says, Jesus, what is the one thing that I lack? What do I have to do to gain eternal life? And Jesus tells him, of course, what do you still lack? Well, you lack me. So go sell everything that you have and then come and follow me. Be with me. I am what you need. But we can't jump to part two without first going through part one. It's never merely about the external compliance, but external obedience will be evident in the life of a believer. Remember that quote from the beginning, that all true obedience springs from saving faith. And what does the, what does the book of James tell us? That faith without works is what? 
It's dead. It's not true faith. So this is a both and. It's not an either or. God works in us, and, but not, not merely with us. He works in us, and he doesn't leave it up to us. See, following Jesus is the second part. We call this part sanctification. This is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. It's his work that we will work. And he gives us the will and the desire to work for him. And his work changes our will. It changes our hearts. It changes our desires and our motivations. We go from being selfish to being a servant. We go from searching out our own wills to searching out his will. And also, it's important to remember that Paul here is talking to a group of Christians. Okay, it's a group of Christians. He's not telling unbelievers to work out their own salvation. That type of thinking is just hypocritical. It's legalism. It's, it's, it's empty and hollow. It's salvation by common sense or salvation by logic, and it's really easy to fall into. See, in order to work out our own salvation, we have to have salvation, the complete salvation already in us. It comes first. We can't work out something that we don't already have. So we're talking about this. We're talking about the second part of salvation, the incomplete part. That's what we're talking about this morning. The first part is done and it's finished. We know it from Jesus' speech. Jesus on the cross said, of course, that it is finished. And we also know it from his posture. Last week we said that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. He sat down when the work was finished. But death and sin do still exist. And so theologians will call this the already and not yet principle of Scripture. That Jesus has already done the work. He's already finished it. He's already delivered the final death blow to Satan. But it is still in this time as things are kind of being worked out to full completion. So now we get to the question, how do we work it out? Here in Philippians it says to work out your own salvation with Fear and trembling. Now, exactly what should a Christian be fearful of? If we look at Psalm chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Serve the Lord with fear and trembling. See, as believers, we ought to fear the Lord. And fear in the context of the Lord is honor and respect. It is giving to God the full respect that he deserves and that he commands when we call him our Lord. It is being in awe of his might and being in humble adoration of his majesty. One of my favorite examples of this comes from the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. And and, and in this book, these children are having a question about the, the King Aslan. And they don't really understand who he is. And they're talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and and they and they ask if Aslan is a man. They get this response. Aslan a man said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So Aslan is, of course, this allegory that C.S. Lewis uses throughout the books to describe Jesus. Of course Jesus isn't safe. Is he safe? No. But he's Lord. He is good. If we have no fear for him, if we have no fear of him, then that's 
That's, that's some proof that we don't really recognize who he is correctly. So we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, both of God and also of our souls. Spurgeon said this again, It's very doubtful whether a man knows the Lord unless he desires to extend the boundaries of the Master's kingdom, but on no account is any Christian to think that he can safely neglect the interest of his own soul. That on no account could any Christian think that he can safely neglect the interest of his own soul. We cannot neglect the interests of our own soul. And that's what Paul here is reminding this church. He said, look, you're going to need to work out your own salvation because I am no longer present with you. Paul at this time is in jail in Rome. And he's writing to them. He says, look, you need to carry this through. This is something that I deposited in you. You need to be working this out on your own. You need to apply the faith that you have to your day-to-day life every single day. Hendrickson said that it is a continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. That's why they call it work. This is working it out. He says to do all things without grumbling or questioning, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. See, working out our incomplete salvation, this results in a new attitude. It's a new transformed heart which reveals itself in our words. He says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. These can be translated to to murmuring, okay? Complaining, questioning, grumbling. And this is a reference back to the Israelites when they're in the wilderness after being rescued from Pharaoh in Egypt. So they grumbled and complained in Exodus 16. They had no food. 16, 2 and 3, it says, The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Look, we're not grateful anymore that you saved us from the most powerful army in the history of the world. We'd rather go back and, and, and work and serve as slaves because at least we had something to eat. Later on in Numbers 14, after Moses had sent the spies out to the promised land and they scoped it out and they see that there's these big, powerful nations that they're going to have to defeat in order to obtain their promised land. Again, they say, uh, this is Numbers 14, 2 and 3. It says, All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? And gosh, we would have rather died as slaves. We would have rather died by hunger. Now, we'd, now we're going to be killed. You know, th- this critical complaining and questioning is, is, is so evident in the life of Israel, even after the amazing works that God had already done to bring them along. They complained. They had no food, and God provides manna, and now they're complaining. They, they don't want to fight these battles, and the Lord is saying, look, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to take care of those things, and yet they can't see what God is going to do on their behalf. So Paul is saying here that we must put off critical talk, especially in the church. This grumbling, questioning, murmuring, complaining. So there's no such thing as the gift of criticism. Just like there's no such thing as the gift of sarcasm. This is not a thing. 
Okay, I fight this one a lot because oftentimes I see things and I want to correct every little mistake that I see anywhere, but very few of them are actually doctrinal errors. Most of them are my own preferences, my own, you know, that's not how I would do something. And, and, I, and I listen to people talk and I go, that's not how I would say that. And I even do this on Monday morning because I go into my office and I listen to recordings of the sermon. I go, I can't believe I said it like that. My tendency is just to nitpick. And if our hearts are critical, it's going to be revealed in our words. And Paul saying there's great danger in that in the church. The church must not be critical. See, critical spirits are the historic bane of the church. Let me repeat that. Critical spirits are the historic bane of the church. The church should be a place of encouragement and love and support, especially for newer and perhaps weaker Christians as we look around, um, those who do not have as much experience as us. Now, this church has always been um, such an encouragement to me in the way that people say uplifting things, and at least to my face, they tell me these great things, you know. Um, But I don't always follow that example in my own life. But to work it out, to, to, to work on this incomplete part of my salvation, that's something that I must do. And if we guard our speech, then you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. And we do this in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That's what Paul says. And where do we work it out? We work it out where we are. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Paul wrote this nearly 2,000 years ago. And I'm not going to say that our generation is any less crooked or twisted than it was. But it probably also isn't any worse in this way either. I mean, I just found out that there is a solar eclipse tomorrow. Did anybody know that? Okay. Um, don't stare at the sun. Uh, Rob is an astrophysicist. He told me that. Don't stare at the sun for even a second, okay, without the special glasses. And if we had thought ahead, we would have ordered a whole case of, of the glasses to, you know, we could have just thought ahead like two weeks. We could have had them here and give them to everybody. Um, but we didn't. Uh, I don't see it as a sign of impending judgment on our nation. That's not what the eclipse is. I see this more of like as a common grace, this amazing splendor, God kind of showing off what he can do. Okay, so um, don't be frightened when the sun blacks out tomorrow for a minute and a half. But Paul is saying that we work this out in the midst of the world that we live in. See, we don't run from it. We don't hide from it. We are in the midst of it. And because of the world we live in, If you are working it out, you will find that you shine as bright as the stars in the heavens. You will be like the shining lights in the world when we speak and act this way toward one another. How does scripture tell us to overcome evil? It says to overcome evil with good. Not with more evil, not with bigger guns, not with louder voices, but to overcome evil with good. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, he says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightest of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So the obedience of the Christian is so noticeable to the rest of the world, and it stands out like the sun or the stars. And as much as the world might not appreciate Christians right now or the things that they do, if Christians ceased to exist, if their charities and service simply went away, it would be as noticeable as the sun blotting out tomorrow. And remember that the light shines the brightest in the darkest places. 
Okay, the light shines brightest in the darkest places. In Matthew chapter 5, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out or trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, don't be afraid to let your light shine. The light in you is evidence that the Spirit is in you, the evidence that this incomplete salvation is being worked out in your life, this ongoing struggle, and it's going to exist throughout our lives. And it's a process that will never be truly complete in us. Now, we've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia at home as as a bedtime story at night. I referenced already The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but now we're we're on the book um, The Dawn Shredder. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Has anybody read this book before? Quite a few of you. Um, in, the, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, we, we find that Lucy and Edmund go off to live with their aunt and uncle and their cousin Eustace, uh, who is an only child. And, and Eustace is a rather awful child. Okay? Um, he loves getting people in trouble. He's incredibly selfish. He calls his parents by their first names. Um, he has no imagination. He complains constantly. He never goes outside. He doesn't like to work. He shirks responsibility, and everything is always somebody else's fault. That's Eustace. And in the book, the three of them get sucked away to Narnia, where they are suddenly on board the ship, the Dawn Shredder. And he's constantly complaining, continually threatens everybody that he can find. He wants to go report them to the, to the um, British consul. And again, this is this kind of magical land where the trees and the animals are talking and there's dragons and all these great things, okay? And, and after this long and horrible boat ride through a storm, Eustace, who of course uh, gets seasick, uh, they land on, the, on, on this deserted island. He runs off all by himself because he doesn't want to have to do any of the chores that everybody on the board of the ship does. And he finds himself in the lair of a dragon, now, the dragon is dead, but his gold and treasure are still there. And Eustace begins to covet all of these things. And he goes to sleep and wakes up to find that he himself has turned into a dragon. And he begins to realize how terrible of a person that he's been to all those people that he was on board the ship with and how horrible he was to his cousins. He had never believed their stories about Narnia. And here he was in the story living it out himself. And there's nothing that he can do, and he gets depressed, and he realizes how, how big of a pain that he has been. But he's powerless to change himself back to the boy that he used to be, until finally he encounters Aslan for himself. See, Aslan leads him to this pool of water on top of a mountain, where his dragon skin begins to peel off. Aslan dips him in the pool, and, and, and he turns back into a boy again, because Aslan is with him. And C.S. Lewis writes this amazing little thing. He says that it would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Now, doesn't this so beautifully describe our transformation as believers, 
that there are many days where we will relapse, or maybe even weeks or months, that we relapse and fall back into those things that we used to do. But we are for certain that the cure has already begun in our lives if we know Jesus. We have the cure because it is the finished work of Christ. It is the work in us. And as we continually strive to work out our own salvation, we'll become more and more like him until we finally get to be with him forever. Let us pray. Father God, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the encouragement and for the challenge that comes to us. And Father, we do want to be like the shining stars in the sky. Lord, we want to be known for being followers of you, not for our critical, complaining spirits. Father, we're grateful that you have done the work of our salvation so that we can be at work. So that you can give us your work, that you could change our wills and change our hearts. We're grateful for all that you do and all that you have done. Be with us this day, we pray, Jesus. Amen.